Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. But we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. May God bless the reading of his word. Pray together with me as we come to God's word. Our Father, here we have gathered in your presence in order to receive from you the great grace and mercy that we so much need, that we so desperately need every single minute of every single day in order to grow in grace and to be transformed by the renewing of our minds and conformed more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. And we acknowledge, Father, that the chief means by which you give that grace to us is is through your living and active word, which is sharper than any two-edged sword, which which penetrates the very recesses of our beings to the core in order to expose all that needs to change in us. And Father, in order to assure us of all that we have and are in Christ Jesus. And so we come to your word this morning praying for your help to understand, to have this truth illuminated to our minds And to have our hearts convinced of it and convicted by it in a way that would continue to change us and transform us. And and this morning, Father, we are mindful of the great love of Jesus Christ. The great self-abasing, self-sacrificing love whereby He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied Himself and took on the form of a servant for us. And became obedient to you to the point of death on a cross for us. Casting everything aside. Laying everything down. Pouring everything out in order, Father, to bless us. And this great love of God in all of its height and breadth and depth has been shed abroad in our hearts. And so this morning as we learn about this kind of love that is your love. We pray, Holy Spirit, illuminate its meaning to us and convince us of its need in our lives and towards one another. We want to love as we've been loved. And so, Father, we pray, be with us today. May the words of my mouth and may the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight as we come to your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, this is one of those chapters of Scripture, isn't it? 
that a lot of people are familiar with, even if they're not a part of the church of Jesus Christ. Kind of like the hymn, Amazing Grace, which gets played and sung by a lot of people and at a lot of occasions, at a lot of funerals, for instance, um, by people who have not been saved by grace alone, and they really don't have any idea what that hymn is all about. This chapter of Scripture can be like that. Gets read a lot, gets quoted a lot, oftentimes at weddings, even though a lot of time the people who are quoting it think it's really beautiful, but they don't have much of an appreciation of really all that Paul is teaching here and how important this passage of Scripture is for all of us. And this is one of those passages that even though it's familiar, we got to come back to time and time and time again. And repetition is good for us with chapters of Scripture like this because we're a people who tend to forget and need to be reminded. So I wanted to look at this chapter with you all this week because it is very beautiful and it's also very, very convicting. When we start to dive in, which we're going to do today, and understand all of these words that Paul says love is, all of these properties of love, it's very convicting when we see the contrast in our lives of all of the selfishness and all of the prideful sin that really is very, very opposed to the properties of real love that Paul is, is laying out here and by which he is highlighting our great need for Christ, our great need for the love of Christ daily to be operative in our lives, this love by which we have been so graciously saved, now we need it to be governing us and reshaping our lives and making us into the image of Him who is love. So that's exactly why Paul wrote this chapter. And that's exactly why 1 Corinthians 13 appears in this particular place in this letter where it does in the book of 1 Corinthians. It's because the lives of these Christians that he was writing to in the church there in Corinth back in the first century were, were contrasting and contradicting the great love of God in Jesus Christ. And so the people there needed to change. And at the end of the chapter, Paul says, doesn't he, they needed to grow up in their maturity of being conformed to the image of Christ. This chapter comes right on the heels of a chapter where Paul has, has spent a lot of time talking about spiritual gifts. And all of the people in the church of Jesus Christ, of course, have been given spiritual gifts by God, by the Holy Spirit, in order to put into action and to be used for the, for the glory of God and for the edification of the body of Christ. And so God had given these gifts to these Corinthian people, but the problem was that, that they were bickering about the gifts. And those who had more showy and flashy gifts, like the gift of teaching or the gift of prophecy or the gift of tongues back then, were sort of vaunting themselves up and above the other people who had lowly gifts, like gifts of service. And their lack of love, see, for one another was causing division in the church. And Paul was saying, there's a better way than all of that. Everything in their lives was actually being driven by even their use of the great gifts of the Holy Spirit, driven by selfishness and pride and jealousy and strife, and that was causing division. And so when Paul tells them at the end of chapter 12 to desire the gifts that God gives, he wants to show them here still a more excellent way, which means the humble way of self-sacrificing love. No matter what gifts and callings God places on our lives, love is the priority. And so really that's what this chapter is all about. There are properties of love that are laid out, 15 of them, and we're going to look at all of them today and talk about what they all mean. But the, the great governing principle here is the priority of love, without which nothing, literally, Paul says. You can have the greatest gifts, and you can do the greatest things, and you can know more theology than anybody else and be able to teach it like nobody's business, but without love, it's nothing. It's just a noisy gong. And a clanging symbol. So you can see how all of this becomes very, very clear in Paul's mind in his exhortation to the Corinthians right there in the first few verses of, of chapter 13 that we're looking at here, where he says that very thing, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, 
but have not love. I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, something abrasive to the ears that nobody wants to hear. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and have all knowledge and have all faith so as to remove mountains but don't have love, then I am nothing. And if I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. So you see it, right? They're seeking gifts. They're they're wanting the gifts of tongues and knowledge and prophecies. And Paul says you can have all of that, but without love, they're worthless. They're not going to do you a bit of good. They're not going to do the body of Christ a bit of good. They're not going to do the cause of the gospel in the world a bit of good without love. And the reason is because the entire purpose of the gifts is that they're supposed to be used by God to build up the body of Christ as a whole. They're supposed to be the, the channels through which all of the other people in the body are blessed by God. And if you're not using them for the good of other people, then you're squandering them and you're burning them up and rendering them worthless. It's kind of like if somebody gives you a, a big bag full of $100 bills as a marvelous gift. And you say, well, what am I going to do with this gift? And it's cold out, so you use them to build a fire. And you burn them all up. Now they're worthless. That's what, Paul's, that's what Paul's saying here. When the gifts that God has given are used for a different reason than He gave them for, they lose their effectiveness and they lose their value. They lose their worth. And, and I mean, look at the things that he lists there in the first three verses. Amazing things like... like Speaking in foreign tongues without having learned the foreign language. Prophetic utterance. Divinely, divinely given knowledge and wisdom and faith. Great acts of charity. Even martyrdom. Profound gifts of God. Powerful in the ministry of the church. All of them worthless apart from love. Now notice that Paul doesn't say... If you don't have love, then the power of these things are going to be compromised or decreased some, minimized. No, he says, apart from love, you're nothing, you have nothing, and your ministry amounts to nothing unless you have love. That's challenging, isn't it? That's sobering, isn't it? Now, note something else important here. Paul's not saying that since these things are worthless without love, that, that all we need to have is love, right? Like the Beatles might sing to us. They sang that and it didn't do them much good, did it? They broke up shortly thereafter. And we can, Paul, Paul's not saying you just need love and, and you can do without knowledge, you can do without any other gifts, you can do without any other ministries. It's not one or the other. It's got to be both working together in this way. God pours out His love through us as He gives us gifts and ministries which are going to edify and equip other people in the body as channels by which His love will flow in powerful and transformative ways into the lives of other people. So if we try to use the gifts apart from love, they'll be useless. But if we try to love one another apart from the ways that Christ has ordained to minister to His body then everything's also equally worthless. And this is so significant for God's people. And at the same time, this is a reality that's terribly neglected. Too many, too many Christians neglect this truth about the priority of love. And they've got massive gifts, massive abilities. They're massively capable of doing really, really impressive things. But without love, it's nothing. Too many Christians become noisy gongs and clanging cymbals because while they're speaking a lot of truth, they're not speaking it in love. They're speaking it out of pride. They're speaking it in a way that divides unnecessarily. Their knowledge of Scripture is often very, very accurate, but their proclamation of it, their application of it is, is unloving. And if we care at all about the ministry of the Gospel in people's lives and if we care at all about God making an impact in people's lives through us then this is something we need to take very very seriously because if we presume to minister Christ and his truth in an unloving way it's going to be to no avail and all we're doing is demonstrating that we're not concerned about others 
And we're also demonstrating that we're not concerned about Christ. We're, we're only concerned about ourselves and being right and winning the argument and impressing people with all that we're able to do. And if that's the attitude of our hearts, we do a disservice to the body of Christ and we dishonor Christ Himself. Listen to how, listen to how John in 1 John chapter 4, you know this passage. Listen to how he articulates the importance of love in the life and the ministry of Christian people. It's very simple. It's very straightforward. 1 John 4, 8. The one who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. It's definitional to His nature, His character. That's remarkable. Further down in 1 John 4 and verse 16, he says... God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So there's, there's absolutely no room, see, for Christians to even start to think that love is optional in our lives, in the way that we treat one another, in the way that we look at the world around us. There's no way for us to even start to consider the idea that if we don't have love, it's going to be okay because at least we have truth and spiritual giftedness and good works going for us. Now the world, of course, and the church is bought into this lie too. As I just hinted at, the world wants to say all you need is love. And so more and more truth is becoming eroded and twisted and perverted and distorted. And we think we don't need that. All we need is as long as we love one another and accept anybody and everybody for whoever they want to be, and whatever they want to do, then that's how God is going to work. Also false. But those of us who know it's false, sometimes can be tempted to fall into the trap of speaking the truth and standing for the truth and maintaining a firm stance for the truth and against all of the falsehood and perversions out there in the world through an unloving spirit. And if we try to do that, if we... Try to, try to perform the ministry of the gospel and speak the truth of God and do good deeds in the world but without love, then John goes so far as to say we don't even know God because He is love. And so your ministry is going to be nothing. Powerful words for the Christian. Important words for the Christian. We can, we can very, very easily spend so much time evaluating the correctness of our doctrine as we must, the purity of our obedience, as we must. Because apart from pure hearts and, and pure doctrine, whatever we're doing isn't actually loving because it doesn't honor God and it's not effective as His truth in the lives of other people. But even as we evaluate so carefully the quality of our teaching and the quality of our obedience, we've got to evaluate the quality of our love. And that's why Paul throws this chapter right into the middle of everything he's teaching the Corinthians. We got to look at our motives. We got to look at our attitudes. We got to look at the inside of the cup and not just what we're doing on the outside, even as Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, in order to make sure that we're not just doing what we're doing in outward conformity, but that what we're doing is in keeping with the very nature of God and who he is which is why and how the Son of God came into this world to save us because He is love. So Paul talks all about the priority of love there and, and then he wants us to know what love is. What is love? How would you define that little word? Well, one thing's for sure, right? L love's a word that is of such massive significance in the Bible, but in our time it's become almost entirely emptied of its meaning as God defines it. Because it's become redefined over and over and over again, hasn't it? And so in our time, love has come to mean something entirely subjective, just feeling-based, entirely sentimental. It's become separated almost altogether from truth and righteousness altogether. And love does, very often, when we genuinely love one another in the way that God loves us, very often it produces wonderful emotional feelings. But there's one thing that we know for certain, and if you've 
If you've not learned this yet in your life, you need to learn it. And that is that feelings and emotions are as fleeting as the wind. And they're fickle. They come and they go. They ebb and they flow. They rise and they fall. And sometimes for absolutely no discernible reason. You ever Are you like me? How you can have the most wonderful day. Everything went great. God just showered blessings on you and the sun of His grace and mercy and kind providence shone upon you all day long and then you go to bed and you wake up in the morning and you feel anxious and you feel like everything's falling apart and what's going on and everything. Feelings, you can't trust your feelings. Feelings are no good judge of what's actually true. But one of the devil's great deceptions and favorite tricks is to convince us that those are the most true and most genuine things about us, our feelings, and that we should let them be our guides more than anything else, more than our reason, more than God's Word for certain. So if the absence of emotions, if the absence of feelings of love means the absence of love itself, then we're in trouble. (laughs) Because that means love is feeble, and subject to, to our fickle, fleeting emotions. But God's Word doesn't teach at all that, that love is feeble, does it? True love, God's love is, is powerful and steadfast and indomitable, even when it doesn't feel good. Did it feel good for Jesus to come down here and love us the way He did on the cross? Did it feel good the night before in Gethsemane? Yet not my will, Father, but Yours be done. Because love was indomitable and not defined by by just the emotions and just the feelings. And this is the kind of love, God's love, that has to flow through us as we seek to love one another and to minister to one another. And so here in this chapter where Paul's told us about the priority of love in the first three verses, now he goes on to define love's properties. As love is defined by the God who is love. This is what love is because this is what God is. This is what you must do because this is what God does and did for us through Jesus Christ. So Paul's not giving us a dictionary definition here, right? A one-sentence definition of what love is. He's given us a list of properties, a list of love's qualities, which are essential to the very nature of love. There's 15 of them here, seven Positive things and eight negative things. And it's a long list, but you got to take it as a whole. Because you start leaving stuff out and cherry picking and saying, well, I can do this, but I don't want to do these, then you've missed it entirely. Because God is all of these things. Love is all of these things. And we must be all of these things. You can't sign up for three or four and think it's good enough. We have to understand comprehensively here what Paul is saying. That true love consists of God's love, what it consists of and what it looks like when it's actually being the governing principle of the way that we live our lives in in relationships to other people. And it's critically important to take this list of properties as a diagnostic list, not to evaluate other people by, but first and foremost to evaluate ourselves by. And one way that you can do that is you can take your name, And you can put it here in 1 Corinthians 13, wherever the word love appears in this list of 15 properties. In place of the word love, you can put your name and then you can put a question mark at the end. Steve is patient? Question mark. Steve is kind? Question mark. Steve is not irritable? Question mark. See how it works? And then you got to honestly answer the question. And whether or not these things persistently describe who you are in relationship to other people. And that's not fun. I know, but it's good. So first of all, verse 4, love is patient. Patience, it's been said, is love's poise. It's love's disposition. Why? Because... When someone's patient with you, in spite of the fact that you're goofing things up a lot and making messes a lot and doing things wrong and saying stupid things and causing trouble, when someone's patient with you, what does that mean? 
It means they're more concerned with you than they are with themselves and with the impact that your foolishness is making on them. But where there's impatience, and impatience often happens very, very quickly. Where there's impatience, what's lying behind it and what you know when somebody's being impatient with you is that they're more concerned with themselves than they are with you. That's how it works. And see, this is why patience can be a very, very good barometer of the presence of love because love is all about self-sacrifice and blessing other people no matter what the cost to self. And so this is the very first thing on the list, very central to the essence of love because it indicates whether we're being selfish or selfless. The biblical word that Paul uses here literally means long-suffering. Emphasis on the word long-suffering. And it just means that, that patience bears with the difficulties and challenges of others. It bears with others even when they're difficult and challenging, even when those difficulties and challenges include offenses and injuries and sin, love bears with them consistently, long-term, not sporadically, not fleetingly. Love responds to other people by being long-suffering, slow to anger, Slow to impulses to say, I'm done with you and I don't want to have anything to do with you anymore because you just bug me and drive me nuts. Slow to defend when somebody keeps doing something that's hurtful to you or hard for you. Certainly slow to avenge when people sin against you. And I'll confess to you, I'll be the first one to confess to you that, that I am not one who possesses great patience. My old joke that I've probably told several times here is that my wife told me once that I had the most patience of anybody that she knows because I never use any of it. Got it all stored up. <laughs> and in, sometimes in my impatience, in fact, oftentimes, the, the problem is with the little things. I, I struggle with the little things. And my wife and my kids give me the most curious, like, why are you bothered about that? Why is this getting under your skin? Why are you so uptight about this? We were on vacation two years ago, and we went to a restaurant, and they had these little numbers that you put on the tables, you know, so that when you ordered your food up at the front, then you put a little number on your table, and then they bring your food out to wherever that number is, right? And they mix the numbers up or something, I don't even know. And I was so worked up about these numbers, and they're going to get the food wrong and the order wrong, and, you know, and it was a big problem. See, she's got a whole story about it. It was a, it was a little thing. But, but I was so impatient with the restaurant people and I had to get this all worked out. Then, the, of course, the food all came and it was all fine. Nothing was wrong and we ate and had a nice meal. And then later that day, um, somebody drove into the back of our car at about 50 miles an hour and totaled it. Brand new car, year old. Like 5,000 miles on this car and somebody just <laughs> destroys it. And I was able to be patient then and deal with the police then and deal with the person then and deal with the insurance then. And I think Justin said, what's up with that? I have more trouble with the table numbers at breakfast than with the car wreck. So sometimes that's how it is, right? You get worked up about little things because you're just thinking about yourself too much. And that's bad enough to get worked up about things that don't matter. But Paul is saying that, that love... Love doesn't allow itself to get worked up even about the big things that people do to you. Love bears all things, it says later down in verse 7, doesn't it? All things. Because it's other-focused. Because love is more concerned with the needs and the feelings of others than it is concerned with it own, its own needs and feelings. Isn't that Paul's definition in Philippians? Consider other people's needs more important than your own. Just like Jesus did. So again, where there's a lack of patience, people know instinctively, intuitively, that the reason is there's a lack of love. Because you're not concerned about me, you're concerned about you. And then verse 4 also says that love is kind, and these two things go together. Kindness is a, a, the fruit of love, which again shows and demonstrates that you're a loving person. So one writer says this, patience is 
passive endurance where you stand and take it all for the sake of the other person while kindness is active service to that person. It's something you do. So patience is love's endurance of bad stuff and kindness is love's performance of good stuff. Patience is love waiting with folded hands and kindness is love actively working with busy hands to bless other people. And of course, we have to remember with all these attributes, as Jesus himself reminds us, that that they can't just show up on the outside, right, of the cup. This is all what needs to proceed from our hearts, from the inside. This is what we need to be praying for God to conform us to the image of in Christ Jesus. People who, who genuinely love and so do these things from hearts that love like Jesus loves. It's, it's not enough for the outside of the cup to be clean while the inside is dirty or the, the tomb to get painted white while there's just death and decay on the inside. The Lord says that He desires mercy more than sacrifice. says it all over the Old Testament. And what He means is that all these people who came into the temple doing all the right things but not having hearts that loved one another and hearts that loved God were just hypocrites and He'd rather they not come at all. And that's what Jesus condemned most in the Pharisees, the, the, the ones who were outwardly good but, but inwardly corrupt. So patience and kindness and all of the rest of this has to, has to originate from the heart. It's got to affect the thoughts, the words, the deeds, the, the things that we do from the heart, from the attitudes within us. And for that, we are surely in need of God's grace to change our hearts. We can't change that. It's possible for us to control what happens on the outside. The the Pharisees were experts at that, but only God's able to change what exists on the inside. And so as you look at this list of attributes and uh, properties and, and characteristics of love, don't be content to evaluate how outwardly you're doing, how outwardly you're being patient, how outwardly kind you are. Ask yourself, what's going on in your heart? Now in the next verse, or the next set of three things go together here. Love does not envy or boast, and it is not arrogant. Those go together. Paul is saying that love is opposed to these things. Love is opposed to jealousy. Love is opposed to envy. Think about it for a moment. John says in 1 John chapter 4, and verse 8, we just heard that a minute ago, that God is love. And then in the Old Testament, we learn that when His people committed idolatry, God was provoked to jealousy. How do you you reconcile God is love with God was provoked to jealousy? And there is no unrighteousness in God. No imperfection. Or what about a loving wife being jealous when she learns that her husband's been cheating on her? Is it not understandable and legitimate for her to feel some kind of jealousy? I think that it is. That's not what Paul's talking about here. Not that kind of jealousy. He's not referring to a jealousy that's provoked by sinfulness and unfaithfulness. He's referring to the kind of jealousy that comes from something good happening to somebody else and you don't want to you're all about you and so you don't want to rejoice with them you wish you had the blessing that they have instead of them having it. So a a colleague gets promoted at work while you're kept at your current position and you're jealous. If If the good in somebody else's life stirs up jealousy in you, then your attitude's not loving because again, it's it's betraying the fact that you're more concerned with self than you are with others. In Corinth, it looked like this. When a fellow Christian had a spiritual gift that they didn't have, or when a fellow brother or sister in Christ was was given a ministry to do that brought recognition to them, or was an amazing opportunity for them, that stirred up jealousy in the lives of other people because they wanted the recognition for themselves. They wanted the blessing for themselves. 
And they were more concerned with that than whether or not the church was going to benefit, whether or not Christ was going to be glorified, whether or not the gospel was going to make an impact. So see, all of these things hang together, right? The, the positive characteristics that Paul's identifying are things that happen when, when love is the rule in our hearts. And the negative things are signals, diagnostic like alarm bells and, and lights that should be going off on the dashboard of your soul that, that show that love is absent and that yourself is more important than other people are. And so it goes without saying, really, that, that then love is not boastful and that love is not arrogant because those are the qualities of sinful self-absorption. Someone who's boasting or arrogant cares most about their own image. They, they care most about impressing other people. So sure, they can quote you Bible verses left and right, and they can tell you what Calvin said here and what Owen said here, but mostly it's not about helping you to understand Christ more, it's more about you being impressed with how much they know. The boastful person is the kind of person that is constantly pointing to themselves, constantly speaking about their accomplishments, their knowledge, their name dropping. They're talking about who they know, who they met. There's nothing worse than a name dropper, right? And it's not love. Love's all about the needs of other people. Love wants at its heart to know what's going on in other people's lives. And again, in the Corinthian context, the loving person doesn't harbor the arrogant attitude that they're better than anyone else. That's what it means. Verse 5, love is not rude. Literally, the word means it doesn't act unbecomingly. And so here again, these characteristics hang together. Rudeness is linked on or linked to insisting on its own way. Someone who acts unbecomingly, someone who's impolite, someone who's rude, someone who is so self-absorbed that they have no consideration for the feelings of others, they tend to say whatever they feel like saying and however they feel like saying it and whenever they feel like saying it even if what they're saying is offensive or lacks courtesy or embarrasses someone else, tears someone else down, hurts someone else. And too often Christians who are zealous for the truth, what they do is they they tend to dichotomize truth and love. They think that in speaking the truth, it, it doesn't matter how I say it, it just matters that I say it. And so... Paul's saying the opposite. He's saying, no, it does matter how you say it. It does matter that you speak the truth in love because so often Christians can be like bulls in china shops. They just rush in thinking first and only of how they feel plowing ahead without listening or stepping lightly or speaking gently. Peter was like that, wasn't he, a lot of times? He was prone to this kind of thing when he was a disciple of Jesus before the death and the resurrection of Jesus. He changed a lot after the death and the resurrection of Jesus because his own selfishness and prideful heart and and sinfulness got exposed there the night when Jesus was arrested and Peter denied him three times. And then after the resurrection on the beach at the end of the Gospel of John, Jesus came to Peter and forgave him and restored him. But before all that, Peter was was prone to just charging in, brash and bold and saying whatever and correcting Jesus sometimes, right? May it never be, Lord, I'm never going to let that happen to you. When Jesus is predicting his own death and Jesus has to say to him, you need to get behind me, Satan. (laughs) You're not thinking straight, Peter. Peter's swinging away with his sword in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before Jesus' death. Lops off Malchus's ear. And Jesus had to restore it, had to heal it. And again, put Peter in his place. Too often we can be like this, driven by our own emotions, driven by our own irritation, our own anger, our just own impulsiveness. Doesn't James say that the anger of man cannot accomplish the righteousness of God? You can, you can scream all you want out of, out of selfish, prideful anger that somebody's wrong and you're just a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal and it doesn't matter and it wor- it's worth nothing. 
Proverbs teaches us that harsh words only stir up anger, but gentle words are effective to change the heart of a king. So the question becomes, do we care about the other person or do we only care about us? Do we care about the one we're speaking to and ministering to? Do we care about our words and ministry being effective in their lives? Or do we only care about making our case and winning the argument and and impressing other people with how much we know or venting our frustration? Because none of that's love. And the result of all of it is nothing. It 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 will come to nothing. No one's going to listen to all of the wonderful truth that God's called you to proclaim because you've made yourself into a noisy gong instead of a herald of the self-sacrificing grace of Christ crucified. Love is not irritable, Paul goes on to say. Love is not resentful. So the loving person who's not fixated on self-interest is the person who's not, he's not easily provoked. They're slow to anger. They're not quick to react to every little thing with rash words or harsh actions. And then he says, love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Lest we get out of balance here and think, well, as long as we just lavish everybody with grace, it doesn't matter what they do. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. It rejoices in the truth. And there's an aspect of what Paul means here in terms of it rejoicing and wrongdoing that again is linked to our selfishness. And what he means is that the loving person's not looking for opportunities for vengeance. Do you ever want somebody to do something wrong to you just so that you can then have an excuse to punish, to be vengeful, to exact retribution? That's not love. Love doesn't want a chance for that. Love isn't eager to take into account a wrong suffered. Love isn't apt to hold a grudge. It's anxious to forgive. It's anxious to extend grace. It's anxious to give mercy rather than being anxious to condemn and seek restitution and vengeance. Love is the prodigal son's father running out with open arms to embrace his disrespectful, sinful, dishonorable son. Because he came home. Love flows from grace, right? And if it flows from grace, then it's it's willing and eager to cover wrongs committed against it. Didn't Didn't we read from Psalm 32, David's words, that that's exactly what God does? He covers our sins. Nick read Peter's letters last week in the service. And so we heard Peter say exactly this. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly because love covers a multitude of sins. We're always going to have a multitude of sins in our lives. We're always going to have a multitude of sins in, in any gathering of people, in any church. And love will cover all of it if we love the way God calls us to love. That's what love wants to do. It wants to cover other people's sins and give grace. It wants to forgive It's selfishness that wants to hold grudges, that wants vengeance, that wants an opportunity to punish. Love wants reconciliation. It may not always be possible, but love wants it. And when it's not possible, love mourns that fact. Love wants peace. Love wants unity. And where sin and false teaching makes peace and unity impossible, love's heart is broken over that and grieves over that. It doesn't revel in discord, in division, and in strife. It doesn't relish animosity. It doesn't relish retribution. And so again, the balance then comes in verse 6. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with truth. So, love isn't soft on sin, even though it's gracious and wants peace. It's not soft on false teaching. But why? Because it rejoices in truth. And that's a way of saying it wants what's best for the other person. And so what it wants more than anything is for the other person to know the truth because the truth is always what's best. Love doesn't want to be right. And love doesn't just want to concede the argument in order to have peace no matter uh, what, what the argument's about. Somebody's denying fundamental truth. 
No, love doesn't want the truth denied. Love wants the truth affirmed because only the truth blesses with the power of God. Love has as its greatest object, not, not, not itself and not just the other person, but, but Christ. Not just the body of Christ, but Christ Himself. And so we rejoice in the truth because we honor Christ. And we know that Christ's truth is what is best for the world and for one another. This is, by the way, how you can understand what Jesus did in the temple when He overturned the tables of the money changers. Was He acting in an unloving way there? No. Because His Father in heaven was the greatest object of His his affection. And He was so bothered by the fact that His Father's house of worship had become overrun with unrighteousness that He became consumed with zeal to defend His Father's holiness and honor. And that's what it was about. Be careful giving yourself permission though to act in similar ways and say, well, Jesus did it, so I'm going to do it because you're not Jesus and you're not sinless and neither am I. And I'll tell you this, that 99.99 something percent of the time that I go and act in anger like that, it's not out of zeal for God's holiness. It's just because of my own selfishness and my own pride. But Jesus was consumed with a zeal to defend His Father's honor. And oftentimes there is indignation in our hearts that is prompted by wickedness and unrighteousness and injustice out there in the world. And that causes us to want to respond in some kind of corrective way, but lovingly. You can fit parents disciplining their children into this category. And again, we got to be careful here. Hebrews reminds us, doesn't it, in chapter 12, that God disciplines all those whom He loves. Why? Not because He loves to just vent His wrath at people and execute vengeance upon them when they do things that are wrong against Him. No, He wants to correct them. He wants to sanctify them. And He's willing to use whatever means possible to give that greatest blessing to us who need sanctification. So on the one hand, parents shouldn't ever buy into this modern lie that that disciplining our children is fundamentally unloving. When the Bible tells us the opposite, doesn't it? Failing to discipline our children is unloving because it's depriving them of the sanctifying influence of discipline. It's leaving them in their sin if we won't discipline them. It's teaching them to rejoice in unrighteousness if we don't discipline them. When discipline is properly applied, it always teaches that sorrow accompanies sin. And then it's always followed by grace and forgiveness as soon as that lesson is learned. As soon as that lesson is learned. So Proverbs does say, Proverbs 13.24, that the parent who withholds discipline doesn't love his child. In fact, it says he hates his child because you're leaving him in their sin. He loves them and disciplines them diligently. So how do you reconcile discipline with kindness and forgiveness? And hopefully you already know the answer. When you discipline your child for the right reasons and in the right way, it's loving because it's accomplishing growth and maturity in their lives. But on the other hand, all too often discipline is done from the wrong motivation. Discipline is done all too often because parents don't have their child's good, their child's maturity and sanctification as their primary driving interest. They're being driven by their own anger, by their own frustration. And and any quote-unquote discipline that is being driven from a selfish, prideful, angry attitude that ends up lashing out physically, that's not discipline. It's more like abuse. Our culture has become incapable of distinguishing the two now. And it says any kind of discipline, loving or not, doesn't matter. Motives don't matter. Scripture doesn't matter. It's all abuse. Just please know that that God's Word is not incapable of distinguishing 
between discipline and abuse. It forbids us from striking out in anger, but it commands us to diligently discipline in love. And then in verse 7, Paul sort of wraps up this list. He says, love bears all things. It's patient. It's not easily provoked. It never takes into account a wrong suffered. It's anxious to reconcile broken relationships. And it also patiently bears others' annoying habits and difficult qualities and even sins that they commit against us because, again, it's not concerned with self. And then he says at the end of the verse there, love endures all things. Well, what does that look like? Doesn't it look like Jesus? Doesn't it look like God? The triune God for all of eternity? Covenanting to send Jesus and enduring our shame, our guilt, our sin. And enduring all of the judgment of God upon the cross where Jesus died. Which means what for us? What does it look like? It means that we must be willing to shoulder the heavy burdens of other people's weaknesses and sins because that's what love is and because that's what Christ is and He is the definition and the author of love. And then lastly here, verse 7, love believes all things and love hopes all things. Don't be tempted to think that that means that love is undiscerning. It just believes all things and it's blind to anything that people do wrong. That's not what it means. What it means is very, very opposed to what some people, believe it or not, have taught. Some people teach that that love is willing to believe whatever is necessary in order to preserve unity in a relationship. That's not what it means. Because love rejoices in the truth, as we've already seen. So we can't lose that balance. So what does it mean that love believes and hopes all things? Here's what Charles Hodge says. He says, love believes all things and that love is not fundamentally suspicious. It readily credits what men say in their own defense. I think that's so important. And I think I can be so guilty of this and I think so many Christians can be so guilty of this. We go around with this attitude of being inherently suspicious of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We get puffed up, we get arrogant, and then we start looking for reasons to believe that other people are wrong and sinful. And then what we do is whatever they do, even if we don't know why they did it or all of the circumstances around what they did and how what was influencing all of that, we assume the worst thing first. And then we go looking for evidence after we've already come to a conclusion in our mind, after we've already rendered judgment apart from evidence, We go looking for the evidence then. And in our tendency towards confirmation bias, we find the evidence we want and we dismiss the other evidence and then we stick all that on them and we read everything through the lens of guilt that we've already imposed. And so Christians do this all the time. They look for reasons to believe that others are sinful. They jump to gratuitous conclusions without objectively weighing all the facts. They pass judgment before having all the facts. Haven't you seen, have you endured this? Have you had this happen to you? It hurts, doesn't it? When somebody assumes the worst about you. Doesn't give you the benefit of the doubt. You're guilty before being proven innocent in their minds and in their eyes. They're the judge, they're the jury, they're the executioner, they're the court reporter, they're the bailiff, they're everything in the courtroom. And you didn't even get invited to the trial, but they're sure you're guilty. You ever been in that position? You ever put somebody in that position? You ever treated somebody that way in your mind, in your heart? I've seen it dozens of times where Christians come to the worst conclusion first about a brother or sister's motives or character based on the most circumstantial evidence and then having become convinced and emotionally committed to the idea that they've sinned, it's almost impossible to persuade them otherwise. Paul says, love isn't like that. 
Love isn't inherently suspicious of others. Love readily credits what they say in their own defense. It wants to believe. Why? Because it hopes all things. It hopes for the best in regard to others. Doesn't mean it's naive. Doesn't mean that it lacks discernment. It means it doesn't rush to judgment. Be careful, Christians, that you're not the kind of person to rush to judgment in your own heart, in your own mind, especially about your brothers and sisters for whom Jesus died. It means when it, it, it means if I love you, I want so much for there to be clear evidence that shows your innocence. And when there is, it, it makes my heart rejoice. Because what I want is for you to be righteous. So this is a big list of things, right? 15 properties of love, which it's characterized by and by which it can be discerned in our own hearts and lives. 15 things which if these are absent, they speak loudly and they flash warning bells on the dashboards of our lives about the absence of love. So we can, you can feel it, can't you? When someone is not kind or patient, you can feel the lack of love. When somebody's just suspicious of you and you can't do anything to, to convince them. When somebody can only boast about themselves and everything they say is coming out as just being in service to their own reputation and, and impressing everybody with what they know. You can feel that, can't you? And, and it hurts when people are like that in relationship to us. And when we're like that in relationship to them, it hurts because it amounts to a lack of love. Because it, it means I'm only concerned with self and I'm not concerned with you. You're only here in my estimation to benefit me. So, again, this list of love's properties is a wonderful and very uncomfortable diagnostic tool in terms of our own hearts, right? And I hope it's convicting for all of us. It is to me. It should be for all of us. Because when we look at these things, and when we look at our hearts, even if it's tempting to be thinking of other people, if you really think about yourself, you've got to be honest, and so do I, that we can't measure up to this list, right? Can anyone honestly say, I actually, <laughs> I'm 100% loving 100% of the time. Anybody? None of us can. And this is what Paul's saying at the end of the passage in verses 11 and 12. He's saying, we're all immature. We're all childish. We all need to grow up in this way. And how does God grow up those whom He loves? How does He, how does he help us to grow up? He, he uses discipline, right? And hard things in our lives. To teach us to trust Him and flee to Him and find His grace and His mercy and His steadfast love and His faithfulness to be satisfying for our souls. And then what that does is it helps us to, to bear the peaceful fruit of righteousness, Hebrews 12 says, and to resemble and to reflect in our own lives more and more this love of Christ in us with which we have been loved. And to, and to become that to other people. And so are you going through hard things in your life? It's because God loves you. I know it's uncomfortable and I know it's painful. But it's intended to refine you. You ever walked down the beach and found sea glass on the beach? Pieces of broken glass from bottles and things that have found their way into the ocean and then they've gotten rolled around in the ocean over and over by the surf, by the waves and, and rubbed up against the sand and the sediment on the bottom for weeks, months, maybe years. And then they wash up on the beach and you pick it up and it's glass and your brain goes, don't pick up glass because it'll cut me, but sea glass won't cut you, right? Because it's been polished and it's been smoothed and all the rough edges are gone. And so now it's shiny and it's beautiful and it's reflecting the light, but it, it can't hurt you. Look, that's our lives. That's our lives in Christ. Baptized into the ocean of Christ, churned and disciplined and 
exposed to all of the hardships and pains and sorrows of this world that grind down all our rough edges and polish us up and make us to reflect the beauty of His holiness and His love and then bless other people and not cut them and hurt them and tear at them. And when we see this list of what love is in comparison to our own hearts and and then we see all the rough edges that are still there in our own lives, we realize we got to grow up. we got to become more like Christ because, because the one person that measures up to this list is Him. Perfectly, right? Jesus does. He epitomizes this list, doesn't He? Without fault, without flaw. And in fact, the whole point is He doesn't just measure up. He doesn't just epitomize the list. Jesus, Jesus defines the list. Because as we saw a couple of weeks ago in Colossians, in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And God, who Jesus Christ is, God is love. Jesus is the epitome and the definition of love. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And so the whole reason, again, for this extended exhortation on love here in 1 Corinthians is that these people in Corinth in the church were not living together as the body of Jesus Christ, who is God, who is love. They were selfish, they were suspicious, they were arrogant, they were rude, they were easily provoked, they were ungracious, they were all of that. And Paul's trying to show them how out of place all of that is within the body of Christ. It's antithetical to the love that Jesus epitomizes and defines. It's contradictory and it's hypocritical to say, I'm a Christian saved by the self-sacrificing love of Jesus and then live in just rampant selfishness and pridefulness and to treat people in unloving ways. Jesus Christ suffered long on our behalf. Jesus Christ didn't elevate himself except upon a cross. He didn't come here to be served. He came here to serve us. He was not easily provoked by our sin to pour out wrath. He was provoked by love to come here and absorb the wrath upon himself and to cover our sin and to say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, even as they were nailing him to a cross. Jesus didn't seek his own benefit. Jesus is the one who rejoiced most in the truth and bore all things and endured all things, even death on the cross, in order to keep no record of our wrongs. So, see, this, he's the most excellent way that 1 Corinthians 13 is highlighting here. It's the way of Christ. And where these characteristics are absent in us, it's because the love of Christ is absent and our sin and selfishness instead is dominant. And our sin can never accomplish the work that God wants accomplished through us in the lives of other people. The only thing that brings new life and salvation and forgiveness and reconciliation to God is the love of Christ in not considering equality with God a thing to be grasped, but pouring Himself out. Greater love has no man than that He lay down His life for His friends. And if you're one of those for whom Christ died, if you have been made to be a recipient of this amazing grace of Christ, then you've got to pray, and we've all got to pray, that His kindness will continue to lead us to repentance, that His loving discipline will continue to refine us and polish us, and that His grace will continue to transform us, and that His love will more and more radiate from us. And in this way, the world will know that we belong to Him. When they see His love in us, they will see Him through us. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, thank You again for Your Word and thank You again for Your character and nature and for Your great love for us. We pray that as we contemplate the great love with which You have loved us to the uttermost by sending Your only begotten Son to pour out His life for us on the cross, 
And we pray that as we consider all of the implications of that kind of love and the ways that Paul highlights them here in the list of properties of love in this chapter, Lord, that you will help us to analyze ourselves and see the ways in which we're deficient and see the lack of love in our hearts. Not because you would condemn us, but Father, because you don't condemn us and you want to sanctify us. And so, Father, even as we sing about the love of God and as we come to the table where we, where we see and, and hear about and smell and taste and feel even these things that signify to us the great love of Christ outpoured, Father, would you help us to be humble and would you help us to repent of our selfishness and our pride and would you help us to love as we have been loved? This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand together, if you will, and turn to page 15, and we will sing the love of God together. Let's stand and let's sing.